Well, good morning. morning. I uh, will start with an apology. If I look a bit tired, it's because I was up most of the night uh, trying to count uh, the number of days uh, between now and the next All Church Retreat. And, um, you know, if you like this church, this is the only day a year when from sunup to sundown, you get to spend the whole day with LMCC. And it only happens once a year. And I don't know, I don't know how many days they put in a year now. It's over 100. (laughs) And so if you miss this, either because you're not here or because you're here but you're not present, you're gonna have to wait. Are you ready for this? This is backed by popular demand. You will have to wait hundreds of days until the next All Church Retreat. I don't know. I, it's, I, I've been trying to tell Logan it's not that funny. <laughs> I said it a couple of times last year, and Logan has kept it alive for 365 days. That's how many days are in a year, Logan. You've kept it alive for 365 days. Um, actually, this is one of my favorite days of the year. I love this church, and I love this day. Um, I'm going to tell a few stories this morning, and the, kind of the theme of my stories are this theme of transition. And, um, uh, well, if you don't know, um, I'm in a bit of a transition now. And w- one thing is I sort of reflect back on the, the last 10 years that I've been at this church. Transition has kind of been a constant theme of my life. Ironically, transition has been a constant theme of my life over the 10 years I've been here. Uh, The transition I'm in now uh, really has been going on for a long time, and I'm kind of in the the final months of it now. Uh, For Sarah and me, for my family, it's a a geographic transition. Uh, We're moving from New York this summer. Uh, So kind of all the things that come along with leaving a place that's been been our home for more than a decade, and there's a lot that comes with that. Uh, for me, it's a job transition, and it's actually not just a job transition, it's a total career transition from something that generally I know how to do to something I have no idea how to do, to something I never thought would be in my career path. And uh, I'll talk uh, about that in a bit, but if you don't mind, I thought I might just take a moment and spend some, uh, a minute or two on just some, some personal reflections uh, looking back. As I said, I've been here at this church for 10 years, Uh, I've done this, meaning preached a sermon, um, almost 30 times since 2012. And uh, the first time, it was the summer, it was August of 2012, when when Ryan um, either heard something from God or just needed a Sunday off. And he asked if I would would consider doing this. And I didn't want to do it. I was scared to death. I didn't feel qualified to do it. Uh, But for some reason, I agreed to do it. And um, in fact, the first four or five sermons I gave, I would always pray. I would always pray at the beginning, and I would say, God, you know how unqualified I am to be up here. And people would say, stop saying that. It makes us uncomfortable. So I did. I stopped saying it, but I still feel it. The feeling never went away. I do not feel qualified to be up here. And um, anyway, that first sermon, August of 2012, it wasn't a particularly good sermon, but it was, it was personal. So I think it, it resonated with some people. And it was a sermon about prayer. And it was specifically a sermon about my personal dilemma with prayer at that moment in my life. My, my dad was in the final stages of a battle with cancer. And I was wrestling personally with how should I pray. And uh, the personal dilemma I was in was should I keep 
praying for healing? Should I continue to pray for a miracle against all odds, against everything the doctors were telling us? Should I continue to pray for a miracle, or should I transition my prayers and start just praying for comfort, for an easy exit? And the conclusion of the sermon was that I had to keep praying for a miracle. I had to keep praying for full healing, because anything less than that was a lack of faith. It was giving up. You know, I didn't want to give up. I gave that sermon. I didn't consult my dad before giving that sermon. He listened to it online, and he wrote me a long handwritten letter afterwards about how much that sermon inspired him to personally keep praying for his own healing. Um, it was about a year later uh, when my dad was, was, it was really dark, and we were, he, he was literally on his, his deathbed, and um, I was talking to my dad, and I said, Dad, I'm still not convinced that this is going to end the way it looks like it's going to end. And he said, you know, I'm still praying for a miracle too. And we prayed together that day in the room in his hospice facility for a miracle. And it was a sweet moment with Jesus. And 10 days later, he died. And, you know, I mean, Ryan was saying this last night. God is confusing. He's confounding, but he's so good. He's just so good. And, um, you know, I've been at this church for 10 years. I've lost both my parents during that 10 years. Two of our three kids were born while we were members of this church. And I sort of was thinking, like, that's four events of really life-altering significance. And I think, I don't know, most humans, maybe, maybe over the course of a full lifetime, you get ten events of that kind of consequence. And for me, that means four of my ten, 40% of the most significant events of my life have happened during the ten years we've been at this church. And I'm grateful for all of you for journeying with us uh, during those 10 years. I could talk about that all day, but I mention it now just to highlight the fact that transition has been a constant theme of my life during the time that I've been at this church. And I suspect that for a lot of you, you could name at least some area of your life right now where there's a transition going on. Our church as a whole, obviously, is in the middle of a transition. We've been in this transition for eight or nine months now. And I know that a lot of you are in a personal spiritual transition where where your relationship with God is transitioning to a deeper one, to one where his presence and power is, is more real in your life. That scripture that was read is an amazing piece of scripture. And in that piece of scripture, the Israelites are on the verge of a major transition. For them, it's a transition that has a, a whole lot of different facets to it. Uh, they're about to go through, through a, a whole lifestyle transition. They're going to live in a different place, and they're going to have to take care of themselves in different ways. They've been living this life in the desert where, where food literally drops down from heaven, and all they have to do is pick it up and eat it. And now they're going to go into a time when they have to grow crops and raise livestock, and they're going to have to make their own food. That's different. It's a transition. They're also about to go through a, a, a political transition, a leadership transition, They've been led by this guy, Moses, who's an amazing leader, a great man of God. But I've often thought, I mean, this guy, he's a great leader, but he must have been kind of a tough dude to follow. He's weird. He's kind of a mystic. He's a bit of a loner, a bit of a depressive. He kind of goes up by himself to the top of the mountain and just stays there for long periods of time and leaves his people wondering, what are we supposed to do? He's a weird dude. Kind of reminds me of one of our pastors. <laughs> Logan. I'm talking about Logan. Logan. <laughs> 
So they're going through this leadership transition. They're about to be led by a new guy, Aaron, who loves God like Moses does, but he's a much more top-down, command-and-control, military kind of leader, which is what they need for this next phase of their transition. They're also going through a spiritual transition. The way they communicate with God is about to change. They've been in this season where God is leading them with a cloud by day and a fire by night. When the cloud moves, they move. When the cloud stops, they stop. It's pretty easy. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if it was that easy all the time? And they're moving into this season where the cloud and the fire are going to go away, and they're going to have to enter this time of discernment, where to follow God now, it's going to be a little different. They're going to have to discern God's will. And one of the things I've learned is that God will speak to you differently during different seasons of your life. Sometimes he will just hit you over the head with where he wants you to go and what he wants you to do. And other times you really have to discern. You really have to discern. So there's lots of aspects to their transition, but by far the most important aspect of this transition that they're about about to embark on is that they are about to enter the promised land, the promised land, this this land, this idea, this concept that has been, um, well, promised to them generations ago. They've been waiting for this for a long, long time, and it's about to happen This is the thing. I mean, you you cannot overstate the importance of what's about to happen. This is the thing they've been wanting. This is the thing they've been looking forward to, the thing they've been waiting for. And in this remarkable, this remarkable piece of scripture in Exodus 33, they're on the verge of going into the promised land. They're on the verge of the thing they've been waiting for. And God says to Moses, he says, here's the promised land. Here you go. Go ahead. Take it. Here's the thing you've been waiting for. I will even send an angel ahead of you to drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go, go to the land flowing with milk and honey. Here it is. Take it. But I will not go with you. I can't go with you anymore because you're a stiff-necked people. This is remarkable. God is saying, here, here's everything you ever wanted. I will even send an angel ahead of you to clear the way. This is everything you've ever wanted. And Moses says, no. No, God, I don't care about that unless you go with me. Unless you go with me, that's all I want. I don't care about the promised land. And the question you've got to ask yourself today is, what is my promised land? What is the thing, the thing you want for your life? A career, a job, a spouse? What is the thing you want for your life? And if God said to you, here, here it is, take it. Here's the thing you want for your life. I'll even send an angel ahead of you to make it really easy. Here, take it. Is this what you think will make you happy? Here's your promised land. Go, take it, go. But I'm not going to go with you anymore. The question is, if God gave you that deal now, would you take it? Would you take that deal? And Moses says, no. Moses says, no, I won't take that deal. I love Moses' words. Moses says, if your presence does not go with us, don't even send us up from here. How can anyone know that you're pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? What else will distinguish you? Do you want to be distinct? Do you want to be set apart? Moses says, the only way to be set apart, to be distinct, is to have the presence of God with you. And that's the only thing Moses wants. The only thing Moses wants is to be face-to-face with God. And then Moses asks this incredibly bold question. He says to God directly, show me your glory. Because that's what Moses wants. More than the promised land, more than anything else in his life, Moses wants to see God's glory. 
to spend time with God face to face. The question is, how badly do you want Jesus? How badly do you want him? And if you had the choice between having all of your dreams come true or having the presence of God with you, what would you decide? It's not easy. What would you decide? Hold that thought. And I want to tell you a little bit about my promised land. Um, when I was a kid, I loved politics. It sounds weird to say it now because nobody loves politics. Politics is like the thing that everybody hates. It's like the only thing we can agree on is that we all hate politics. As a kid, I loved it. I just loved it. I, um, I did student government stuff all through, uh, all through the time I was a student. I was president of my middle school, president of my high school, president of my college student government. I just loved it. And I was never like a popular kid. I just somehow convinced people to vote for me. Um, if you need proof, I know this might surprise you. If you need proof that I wasn't a popular kid or wasn't one of the cool kids, I think we found a picture from high school. I don't know if you can see that. So this is when I was president of my high school. Um, and uh, I'm the one on the bottom right. <laughs> um, I just loved it, and I did it outside of school, too. All through, you can take that down now, please. <laughs> Thanks, Angel. Um, I did it outside of school, too. All through high school and college, I would, like, volunteer on local campaigns. In fact, while I was a student in college, I was three times, three different times, I worked as a campaign manager for local elections. I did two for state representative, for two different people running for state representative, and one for uh, somebody running for state senate. And I, I loved... I, well, I loved, I loved two things about elections, which I continue to love these two things. Elections have uh, two things in, uh, in common, which is that there is a hard deadline that cannot move. It's election day. You can't move it. And when that deadline comes, you know for certain, black and white terms, you know if you've won or lost. And I've worked on a lot of projects in the corporate world. I've never worked on a project that has those two characteristics, a hard deadline that can't move, and you know at the end of it whether you've won or lost. Um, so I loved campaigns for that reason. I also just loved the sport of it, the strategy of it, and particularly on the local level, because with local elections, it's the case that usually, more often than not, the winner is simply the person who wants it the most, the person who works the hardest. Um, the, the year, the summer between my sophomore and junior year in college, I was the campaign manager for this woman who was running for state representative in West Michigan. And she was a nurse. She had never run for public office before. She was running in a primary against six other people. And somebody put me in touch with her, and I, I just liked her. She was a Christian. She loved God. She loved Jesus. And I just liked what she stood for. And I didn't think she had a chance. She was running against six other people, several of whom were really well-known in the community. But I decided this would be fun to work with her. And so uh, we started working together, and this was a, uh, an off-year primary election for a small state office, so turnout was going to be really low. So the first thing I did was I studied the numbers. I studied the numbers. And then not only did I study the numbers, but it turns out through the clerk's office, you can actually get the record of who votes. It's public record who votes. So I went to the clerk's office, and I got the list of people who have voted in these kinds of elections the last two cycles. So I had this list of all the people who voted the last two cycles. And I said to this woman, I said, here's our strategy. And it's not going to cost any money. All we're going to do is we're going to meet all these people. And that's basically what we did. We spent three and a half months going door to door, trying to meet all the people who had voted in the last two elections. 
and we won by a lot, like a lot. We just met, met way more people than the other six candidates combined. Just because we wanted it more, we worked harder. You don't have to clap, it's not that big a deal. <laughs> but that's sort of the story of my life. If I want something, I work hard and I go after it. And my MO my whole life has been work hard and pray hard. And that has basically worked for me. The first real job I ever had was working in the White House. And I prayed to get the job, and looking back, there are some people who helped me get that job, but really it was God. I mean, it didn't make any sense. I had worked for, like, some local people in West Michigan, and then all of a sudden I'm working at a very junior level, but working for the President of the United States. It didn't make any sense. God was in it. And um, so I went to D.C., and I worked in the White House for a while, and I loved it. And in D.C., my, my love for politics started to morph into a love for public policy. So I went to graduate school and studied public policy. Then I got a job for the governor of Massachusetts. Then I got a job working for the secretary of the treasury. His name was Hank Paulson. I happened to be at the treasury department during the two years which included the worst financial crisis during the Great Depression. I don't think it was my fault, but it, it <laughs> could, I guess it could have been. Anyway, it was like the most stressful time of my life. Long hours, seven days a week, all-nighters all the time but it was also incredibly fulfilling. It was work that had consequence, work that had significance. And I started to, so, so I sort of fallen in love with elections, then I got this love for public policy, then at the Treasury I was learning about crisis management on the biggest stage you can possibly imagine. And I'm in like my mid to late 20s. And I knew that God was using all of this to prepare me for something. I knew exactly what I wanted it to be. I never said it out loud but I wanted God to be preparing me to go back to the White House and not in a staff role. As ridiculous and as arrogant as it sounds, ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be the president. That was my promised land. That was my promised land. After um, the uh, treasury job ended and uh, uh, I got a job at the New York Stock Exchange. The New York Stock Exchange reached out to me. They had a new CEO and they hired me to be the chief of staff. So we moved to New York. Uh, early in 2009. And I thought, well, I'll spend most of my life in government, but it'd probably be good to learn about the private sector. So I got this job and I loved it. It was really fun. I spent six years at the New York Stock Exchange. The job ended when a company based in Atlanta bought the New York Stock Exchange. You may not know this, but the New York Stock Exchange is now based in Atlanta. <laughs> Weird. Uh, so they gave me the option, you can move to Atlanta or you can stay in New York and leave. And we wanted to stay in New York, primarily because of this church. And so we decided to stay in New York, and I got another job, I guess a, a bigger job, at least in terms of responsibility, but at a smaller place, uh, a job at a bank. And the, the year that I was transitioning jobs is the same year my dad died. And another thing happened the year my dad died, which is that my mom, who had been in remission from breast cancer for years, she had been cancer-free for years, uh, just as my dad was really getting bad, my mom said, I don't feel great. And it kind of went on for a few days, so we took her to the doctor, and it turned out her cancer was back. And she died two and a half years after my dad died. I'm in this new job on Wall Street, doing something I never really thought I was going to be doing. It was fine, but it wasn't fulfilling. My parents had both died, and it just rocked my foundation. It just rocked my foundation in a way I can't fully describe. My dad died when he was 60, my mom was 63. It just gave me this profound sense of how short life can be. 
And here I am in this job, and I start to see my promised land drift further and further away. And you know there's that moment in your life when you realize, I'm either going to achieve the dreams I had when I was a kid, or I'm not. And this was the moment I realized I'm not. I'm not going to get there. I'm not going to get to the White House. And uh, it was the summer of 2016, and so I just started praying. Just started begging God for direction, begging God for some kind of breakthrough. Not to get to the White House. I, had, I didn't care about that so much anymore. I just wanted to know, what am I supposed to do, God? What do you want me to do with my life? I went through this period for months and months on end where I would fast one day a week. I was diving into scripture like I never had. I was seeking God like crazy. To be honest, I wasn't getting a whole lot back, but I kept seeking. I just kept knocking. I just kept persisting uh, something back, some kind of breakthrough. In uh, early 2017, uh, January maybe, sometime early that year, uh, a couple people reached out to me, people who I had known from West Michigan but hadn't talked to in a long time. They reached out to me and they asked if I would consider moving back to Michigan to run for Senate, U.S. Senate, United States Senate. Um, I knew at the time in my gut that God wasn't in it. But all of a sudden, I start to see my promised land. I start to see this path back to my promised land. I could go to Washington. I could, this is like my David and Goliath moment. This young kid takes on the U.S. Senate and goes, goes to Washington, and there he goes. I didn't make, I, 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 it's just like Exodus 32. It really is. It's just like Exodus 32. God was saying, here, here's your promised land. Do you think that's what will make you happy? Go, go, but I'm not going to go with you. And at the time, I knew God wasn't going to go with me, but I thought somehow maybe I can drag him along. <laughs> maybe I can just drag him along. So I started to walk towards it. And I started to have some conversations with these people, and we kind of started planning and plotting. And it got to the point where I said, well, if this is serious, what do I need to do? And they said, well, you need to meet with the head of the state party. I said, okay, well, how do I get that meeting? And they said, we'll get you that meeting. So they hooked me up with a meeting with this guy. The meeting was on April 14th, 2017. Which was, it was a Friday. It was a good Friday. Uh, I was in town that weekend because that Sunday, April 16th, which is Easter Sunday, was the one-year anniversary of my mom passing away. So my siblings and I were convening in Michigan that weekend to be together that weekend. And because I was in town, they were able to set up this meeting uh, with this state party guy for that Friday. The meeting, I, had, I prayed about this meeting. I fasted. I did everything I could to try to drag God to my promised land with me. <laughs> the meeting was a disaster. It couldn't have gone worse. I show up to the meeting on time. The guy keeps me waiting in the lobby of his office for an hour and 15 minutes. When he brings me into his office, he says, I'm really sorry, but this is going to have to be short because I have a dentist appointment in 15 minutes. <laughs> and he sa I said, I'm ready to like, make the pitch. Here's how I'm going to change the world. He said, it it's fine. This is going to be really short anyway. He said, we have a lot of really good candidates for this office, and you're not one of them. I said, okay. So I go to spend the weekend with my siblings, and I'm mourning both the death of my career dreams and my mom all in the same weekend. It was the following Friday, April 21st, 2017, when I'm back in New York, and I'm on the subway on my way to work. And I was, I was a bit later than my normal routine. It was probably 9, 9.15, something like that. I had walked my kids to school that morning and, so, and gotten a cup of coffee after that, and it just was a bit later. And I'm on the subway, and you know how your phones don't always get, my phone doesn't always get great reception on the subway, but I just had my phone in front of me, and all of a sudden an email hits. A email hits, and it just sort of pops right up. The email is from the chairman of the board of a college called Hope College 
which is a small liberal arts Christian school in West Michigan. Uh, I went there, my wife went there, we met there. It's a great school. I had been on the board there for a couple of years. And the email is not just to me, it's to the 32 other, it's to me and the 31 other people on the board. And it says the president of the school had resigned unexpectedly or was going to resign that day. It would be announced later that day. And I get this email and all of a sudden, I, I recognize the voice now as the voice of God, but at the time I didn't quite know what it was. This voice in my head saying, that's why I closed the other door. You're supposed to go to Hope College and be the president. And I said, that doesn't make any sense. And you know what? I'm right. It doesn't make any sense. (laughs) College presidents have two things in common. They're really old and they're academics. The average age of a college president in the United States today is 62 years old. That's the average. That means half of them are older than that. And 80%, 80% of college presidents have a PhD. So I'm, at the time, I'm 37. I'm 37 and I don't have a PhD. And this email hits and this thought is emblazoned in my head saying, I want you to go to Hope College and be the next president. And I'm thinking, that is crazy. I've been spending my life preparing for something else and they need a different kind of person than I am. It doesn't make sense for me or for the institution. And yet I couldn't get this thought out of my head. All day, all day it's in my head. And it's later in that afternoon, and I'm at work, and I'm in a meeting, and this thought, and I'm just wrestling with it, and I hate the thought. I don't want to do it. I hate it. I've spent my life, my career, preparing for this, this promised land. And I don't want to go to Hope College, this small school that nobody's ever heard of. It's a great place, but it's like I've got big things in mind. And all day I'm wrestling with it, and it's late in the afternoon. It's probably 3, 3.30, and I'm in a meeting at work, and I should have been focused on the meeting at work, but I can't get this thing out of my head. It's just, it's just there. I can't get it out of my head, and so I start to pray. And I said, God, if this is really from you, I need a sign. Otherwise, I'm going to just do whatever I can to get this weird, strange, confusing thought out of my head. As I'm in the meeting, praying this prayer, I need a sign, my phone starts to buzz. I pull out my phone. Somebody's calling me. I don't recognize the number, but I recognize the area code. It's 616, which is the area code where Hope College is. You know those moments you've had, maybe you've had them, where you realize, you realize that God is real, and it's both comforting and terrifying at the same time. And my heart started to beat. I had just been praying for a sign, and all of a sudden my phone starts to buzz from somebody at Hope College or in that area. I can't answer it because I'm in a meeting. There's a voicemail. I listen to the voicemail after the meeting ends. It's somebody else on the board of Hope. The voicemail says, hey, Matt, uh, I assume you saw the news this morning. I just wanted to talk to you about it. Uh, This is a guy who I had never talked to outside of a board meeting. He had never called me. I had never called him. So weird that he would call me. I called him back, and we had a conversation. I was too embarrassed to say out loud the thought I'd been having because it just was strange and weird and didn't make any sense. I found out a long time later, that he had been having the same prompting from the Holy Spirit that he was supposed to call me and tell me to do the job, but he was too embarrassed to say it out loud or tell me to apply to do the job. So we have this sort of weird superficial conversation about the college and about what's going on. We're both clearly supposed to say something, but neither of us say it. Um, I get home from work that day, and uh, I said to Sarah, or Sarah said to me, how was your day? And I said, my day was kind of weird. And she said, my day was kind of weird. And it was one of those, okay, you go first. No, you go first. <laughs> and so I told her about my day, and she said, well, I don't have anything that, 
kind of direct in terms of a sign, but she said as soon as I, she didn't get the, the board email I got, but she got the email they sent later that day to the 30,000 alumni of the school, and she said as soon as I got that email, I just had this weird sense that there's something here for us. And I said, that's weird. And she said, yeah, that's really weird. And we said, what do we do? And we said, well, let's pray about it. And so we spent that weekend praying about it. And by the end of the weekend, I was kind of starting to get excited about it. It could be a fun job. It's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like being the mayor of a small town. It could be a kind of a cool, fun job. And, and um, so by the end of the weekend, I'm kind of starting to get excited about it. And I go to work on Monday, and I just start to get in my head again. And I start to visualize the board of this school. And I know the board pretty well because I've been on it. And I start to kind of just think, look around the room and look at the faces. And I, I just realize, like, this is impossible. There's no way I'm going to convince this group of people, even if I wanted this job, that I'm the right guy for it. And I just start to get in my head again. And it was Tuesday, April 25th, the next day, when I'm... Um, uh, in a taxi on my way to a, a really important work meeting. I had to give a presentation to a, to a, a big group of, of a hundred or so people, and this is a meeting I've been preparing for for a long time, and I've got the presentation on my lap in the back of a taxi, and I should have been focusing on it, but I can't get this hope thing out of my head, and so I say the same prayer, God, I need a sign. God is so gracious. You know, it's like Thomas. Thomas asks Jesus, he, he, he's, and, and Jesus says, stop, Thomas, stop doubting and believe. When Thomas doesn't believe, Jesus says, stop doubting and believe. But then Jesus shows him a sign. He gives him more evidence. He says, look at my wounds. You can touch my side. So I'm in the back of this taxi. The Holy Spirit is clearly speaking to me. I'm just not picking up on it. And I'm in the back of the taxi, and I said, God, if this is really from you, I just need affirmation. I just need affirmation that this is from you. I'd been in the taxi for maybe 10 or 15 minutes. The taxi driver had not said a word to me, and I hadn't said a word to him other than telling him where I needed to go. We were at a stoplight, and literally, as I'm praying this prayer, God, I need a sign, the guy turns around, and he's like, hey, man, I got a question for you. Okay. He said, where did you go to college? <laughs> I'm stunned. In fact, I start to tear up, because again, it's one of these moments where it's like, man, God is so real, and he's so near, and he's so faithful, and he hears prayers, and sometimes he just answers them like that. And the taxi driver is like, okay, if you don't want to answer, that's fine. <laughs> he, said, um, he said, my son just, it just is a junior in college, and I've just started asking people where they went to school. Or where they went to school. And so I said, oh, no, it's fine. I went to Hope College. And so i having this weird conversation with a taxi driver about Hope College, and on the inside, I am freaking out <laughs> because I know God is telling me I need to go to Hope College to be the next president. I will spare you all of the details. They went through a search process that lasted about a year and a half. They had over 100 people apply, including sitting presidents of other schools, provosts from around the country. And somehow, in some crazy, weird way, on December 7th, they announced that I would be the next president of this school. And you don't need to clap. It's... It was just this crazy, incredible experience where every time I doubted something, God gave me more affirmation. And every time I needed a wall to be broken down, in one way or, the, or another, the wall just came down. And it's, it's been an incredible thing for our marriage. And I don't, I don't know if you know Sarah very well. Sarah is proud of her, hopefully you don't mind me saying this, Sarah is proud of her reputation for being able to slip in and out of big crowds without being seen. <laughs> 
<laughs> Sarah has this enormous faith, and this faith that is so real and so practical. And there was one time, um, well before I had even applied for the job, when they were still forming the search committee that was going to do the interviewing, and Sarah said, I think we need to do something big as an act of faith to show God that we're hearing him and that we know how this is going to end. And I said, okay, <laughs> like, what do you have in mind? And she said, I think we need to buy a house in Michigan. And uh, you know, we'll live in a, um, they have a president's house on campus, but Sarah said, we'll want, it's like right in the middle of campus, so it's kind of a, a fishbowl house. And she said, we'll want some place to escape to on weekends and to kind of get out of the fishbowl. And she said, so why don't we look for some little cottage or something that can kind of be a, uh, a weekend escape? And I said, okay, let's look. <laughs> And so she started looking, and she found something that we both liked, and she came home one day, and she said, Matt, I want to make an offer on this house. And I said, I don't think so. Let's let the process play out a little. This is months before I even applied for the job. This thing has so far to go. And she said, no, let's make an offer on this house. I had been reading through the book of Jeremiah, and the next morning, she, this is the evening when she wants to make an offer, the next morning, the next chapter in the book of Jeremiah is Jeremiah 32. And there's this weird little story in Jeremiah 32 where the Israelites are being exiled to Babylon and Jeremiah needs a sign. God, sends, God says to Jeremiah, you're gonna come back to Jerusalem and as a sign that you will come back to Jerusalem, Jeremiah, I want you to buy a piece of property in Jerusalem as a sign that you will be coming back to Jerusalem after you go to Babylon. And so I'm reading this and I'm like, oh man, <laughs> God wants us to buy this house. So we bought a house. We bought a house in Michigan months before I even applied for the job. It's just crazy. It's really a, a, a miracle. There are a handful of young college presidents in the United States. There are a handful of presidents who don't have a PhD. If you do a Venn diagram, there's like nobody in the middle that's both. And yet somehow they've hired this 39-year-old non-academic to be their next president. And the crazy thing is, it's like this huge Red Sea that was just parted. And it's not a Red Sea that I even ever had really any interest in crossing. And yet now it's the thing, the thing I've, I've never been more excited about this than anything else in my life. Why? Because I know, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is going there with me. And that's all I care about now. The amazing thing through this experience is that God just kept showing up with these crazy signs, these crazy miracles. Every time I needed affirmation, he was there. And now I just can't get enough of it. I just can't get enough of it. And remarkably, if somebody said to me today, if somebody said to me, Matt, you can go to Washington. You pick the job, any job you want, including the top job. Go to Washington. I would say no. I'm going to go to Holland, Michigan to go to Hope College because I know that God is going there with me. I, um, I was at Hope this past week. I don't start until July 1, but I was at Hope this past week for some transition meetings. And on Tuesday night, uh, this woman comes up to me. She's a math professor at Hope College. I'd never met her. She never met me. She came, came up to me and she said, Matt, I got to tell you something. I said, what? She said, a year ago this month. I said, a year ago this month, what? And she said, a year ago this month, the Holy Spirit told me that our next president would be named Matthew. And she said, so every day from then until the announcement was made, I walked this campus and prayed for Matthew. And I said, wow, that's amazing. And she said, yeah. She said, when they announced it was you, I was like, that's who I've been praying for? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I know, it's so crazy. It's so weird. 
It doesn't make any sense, but I am so excited about it because I know that God is going there with me, and that's all I want. That's all I care about. It really is. I got up early this morning to kind of think about this talk and think about this, and you know, I, I don't know. This might be the last talk I give at LMCC, and I just was kind of in this moment where I was thinking, like, I want this to be good. I want maybe I want this to be memorable. Maybe people will say like, this was a highlight of the weekend, and I just had to repent. And I had to like, God, I don't even want to come up on stage. I don't want to do anything unless you're here with me. I don't care if it's any good. I don't care if this is memorable. I just want you up here with me, God. That's all I care about, and that's where I am in my life, and it's just amazing. See, ultimately the question isn't, do you want to do this with God or do you not want to do this with God? The question is, do you want to do something or do you want to do nothing? Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, nothing. That's why Paul says, I consider everything else a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing God. Knowing God. You realize that's what we're talking about. Knowing the God. The God who, with no point of reference, with everything dark, just spoke and created the beauty of light. The God who, with no effort of his own, other than his own voice, just spoke and created 200 billion galaxies. The most incredible, most amazing thing that has ever happened is that that God can have a relationship with human beings. And when you know that God, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. He'll give you everything you need. There's this great moment in the life of David. It's in, it's in 1 Samuel 30. And it's a dark day for David. David and his camp, they're in a place called Ziklag. And the Amalekites have raided Ziklag and they've taken everything, including their wives and their children. Everything's gone. And the Bible says that David's own army was about to turn against him. His own army wanted to kill him. And what does David do? The Bible says this. It says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord. He strengthened himself in the Lord. He'd lost everything. His family, everyone's weeping, his armies turned against him, and yet David is able to strengthen himself in the Lord. And you can do the same. That's what we're talking about. One of the most breathtaking moments in all of Scripture is Exodus 19, when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to have an encounter with this God to strengthen himself in the Lord. It says the earth was trembling. The whole mountain is covered in smoke. God descends on the mountain with fire. The Bible says that when Moses spoke, God responded with thunder. And the people are there down below and they're watching this in terror because an incredible, impossible thing is happening. The God of the universe is having a meeting with a human being. And that's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. And the thing that we so easily lose sight of is that you and I can climb the mountain ourselves and have the same kind of meeting with Moses that Moses had. The same kind of meeting with God that Moses had. And I think there's a risk with Christians. I think there's a risk with Christians that we get content meeting people like David, meeting people like Moses, meeting others who've met God, and we forget, we forget that we can climb the mountain ourselves and meet with God. I think maybe there's a risk in this church given what we've been going through and we've had so many incredible stories of people who've had these encounters with God. I think there's a risk that some people might just get uh, satisfied being around it. Wow, there's so much cool stuff going on at this church. I love it. I love being around these people who are having these amazing experiences and you forget that you can climb the mountain yourself and have the same kind of experience with God. And I think that's what God is calling you to do today, this morning, to climb the mountain 
You know, there are some moments, last night was one of them, when we're encouraging you to pray with somebody else. Today we're encouraging you to climb the mountain yourself and have a moment with God, to have an encounter with God, you and the God of the universe. Because here's the thing. If God can speak into an empty universe and create light and create 200 billion galaxies, imagine what he can do if he speaks into you Imagine, imagine the voids in your life that he can fill with light. Imagine the places you thought were dead that he can bring back to life. Imagine the 200 billion mistakes you've made that he can erase. That's what we're talking about. And even better than all of that is that you get to experience a moment with your creator, the one who designed you, the one who formed you, the one who wrote your story you get to have an experience, an encounter with that God. And that's what we're talking about. Um, I'm going to pray. And then I think Ryan's going to come up and introduce the time of solitude. Let's pray. Oh, God. We just want you. We just want your presence. We just want you to be with us. We don't care about the promised land. We don't care about anything. We just want to know that you're here with us in whatever we're doing. We just want to know that you're here with us. Oh, God, descend on us. Oh, you mighty lion, you powerful almighty God, descend on us today that we might encounter you like Moses did. It's comforting, but it's terrifying. And we're okay with that. We just want to experience you. We just want to have an encounter with you. Oh, God, teach us to climb the mountain. Teach us to climb the mountain and teach us to talk to you face-to-face like Moses did. Oh, God, this morning we pray the same prayer. We have the same request that Moses had. We want to see your glory. We want to see your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.